Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a daily podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. The European Commission has issued a roadmap to help EU countries lift lockdown restrictions and coordinate their approach with their neighbours. This is not a green light for countries to dismantle measures overnight, they stress, but more of a framework in which that can happen. There should be a sound epidemiological criterion that shows that there is a significant decrease in the spread of the virus over a sustained period of time. Irish Times Europe correspondent Naomi O'Leary has been following the story. Naomi, the European Commission has just published guidelines on how EU countries should ease out of lockdown restrictions. What do those guidelines say? So they describe it as a roadmap. So it's not a recommendation that it's time for any given EU country to ease out of lockdown measures. What the Commission is trying to do is to coordinate so that countries take some kind of comparable approach. So they've tried to uh, emphasise that countries should um, make the decisions to ease restrictions based on the same criteria. Um, The number one criteria is that you have to have a sustained drop in cases. Um, That's the first one. The second one is that you have to have the healthcare capacity to deal with a renewed outbreak, which they say is inevitable. If you ease restrictions, there will be a renewed outbreak. Um, So you need to be able to deal with that. You need to have the healthcare capacity, but also you need to have the testing capacity to know where that's happening. Because it will happen, but it will be local. And if you can figure out where it is and put and put conte- uh, con- specific restrictions on that area where the outbreak is, it will be kept local. At least that's the idea. And so that's that paints a path forward where you can start to ease off on national, huge, uh, countrywide measures and move towards more localised restrictions that are more targeted and specific to where the outbreaks are. Why were these guidelines necessary, Naomi? Well, partly it's politics by the Commission. So in the initial stages of the outbreak, the Commission was um, did not react on time to stop EU countries behaving um, in a totally uncoordinated manner. So it seemed like nothing was happening for a very long time. And then all of a sudden, within the course of about a weekend, border closures, there was just a cascade of border closures across Europe. Countries weren't even coordinating with the states next door. Um, So it was like dominoes. It caused chaos. There were traffic jams of days long on on borders. EU citizens were stranded trying to get home. They weren't allowed passage, for example, through Poland. It looked really bad. It almost looked like, you know, it was like the key precepts of the EU, like freedom of movement, were just suddenly falling like dominoes and it looked chaotic um, and the the commission hadn't successfully got all the EU countries to work together in a coordinated manner that time. So this time round, they're saying we're going to get ahead of the curve. Um, We can see that countries are starting to consider easing restrictions. So we're going to play our role in trying to coordinate that. So we don't have a kind of repeat of the the chaos and the piecemeal ad hoc um, disorganized sort of country by country measures that happened in the initial stages. The other thing that they point out is that if you share an open border with a country, um, then 
you need to more or less have the same approach or else your measures are going to be ineffective. So just taking the case of um, Ireland, clearly, um, if Ireland has very strict measures on um, in lockdown, but in the Republic does and Northern Ireland doesn't, then you can it, it undermines the efficacy of the more strict area, I suppose. So that's obviously the case throughout Europe. And they're, they're trying to, to encourage states to coordinate, to follow the same precepts so that things can be helped to get back to normal. And they say that you you ought to have open borders if the two neighbouring states are at a similar stage in their pandemic. So if you are kind of at a comparable stage, then there should be freedom of movement. So the original purpose of the guidelines was to coordinate the approach across Europe. To what extent are these guidelines likely to reduce the grip of the virus within countries Uh, For example, by identifying a kind of a gold standard for elements of dealing with the crisis like testing. Well, um, there was a bit of political pushback against the Commission on this. So some member states saw it as premature and unhelpful for the Commission to start talking about easing lockdown because they didn't want uh, the communication to be confused to citizens. You know, they didn't want uh, the public to start to think, oh, good, you know, it's nearly over. Uh, The Commission's talking about EU-wide, you know, easing out of restrictions. So there was kind of pushback from member states and they said that, you know, it's inappropriate for the Commission to start talking about this at this point and this is entirely up to member states. So uh, the language was sort of changed and the de- the release of this report was, was delayed. Um, so they're very, very str- strongly emphasising that these are guidelines. It's kind of up to member states to follow them. Um, But they have said that if they see measures which they deem to be inappropriate, they will ask nicely for those measures to no longer be um, enforced. Um, But uh, yeah, it's it's it is voluntary. The one thing that could be very useful is if rather than um, all 27 EU member states uh, developing separate contact tracing apps, for example, uh, if there was some sort of coordination on that, uh, because after all, people can move between EU member states in theory. So if contact tracing apps um, are developed, it, it would be it would help if they worked in more than one country. Um, but there is uh, still, I mean, for example, in Ireland, the HSE has said that it's developing its app. Poland says it's developing an app. There's another. Uh, there's another. Uh, initiative which is uh, being led by Germany. So there are actually in in reality different initiatives going on to develop different contact apps. So you mentioned apps there, Naomi, um, and and that's certainly uh, part of a strategy to to help uh, the disease to remain localised. What other elements might be in that mix in terms of, of the guidelines? Well, I can go through them a bit. There's basically six um, key things. The apps is really important. Um, in case any listener isn't familiar with how they work, if you have Bluetooth on, say on your phone, and you're walking around and you get within a certain radius of someone else who also has Bluetooth on on their phone, the mobile phones kind of ping each other, and a contact tracing app would collect. Uh, would register all the mobiles that you've pinged with in the course of your day, and if you get a positive um, coronavirus diagnosis. how it would work is that all those people who you'd been in contact with will get a notification saying that you've been exposed and you ought to self-isolate and try to get tested. So that's how the apps work. 
Um, and the commission has recommended that this is probably a key way of easing lockdown because it's just not quick enough to manually or, you know, through person contact trace by literally asking all the people who they've been in touch with because they may not know if they've been to the supermarket but if you walk through the supermarket with one of these apps and they're also on everybody else's phone then it collects the data um, and it can be automatized basically without without having to have the manpower uh, but that would be required to do that with by, by people um, of course there's concerns about data privacy um, there's there's a a, a a huge emphasis on ensuring that the health data, so example, for example, the 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 personal information of who has been diagnosed positive with coronavirus, for example, is kept absolutely private, and that the data on where outbreaks are is anonymized. So we know, say, there's six cases in in a particular zone, but we there's we don't know who who they are. That's that's really important. Um, so that's one. That's that's the that's the the contact contact tracing part of it um another important um aspect is the is data gathering and testing um so it's really important for countries to have a real time picture of where infections are at so for example in ireland we had this massive delay in getting back test results that that almost that makes testing much less effective because you don't know what stage your your outbreak is at. So it's really important to get as near to real-time results as possible. Then to share that data, to have that data open um, so that everyone, all the different ministries or even different countries that might need that data, all the experts needed can, can study it. Um, also, it's very important for member states to be using the same criteria for things like testing and reporting. So uh, all states should you know, have the same approach to testing so that their data is comparable and also be reporting data in the same way. So there's huge divergences in that, you know, like um, in some countries, testing is so limited, they're only really testing people that turn up in hospital, which also obviously means that you don't really get a, a sense of the broader outbreak. And it can really skew what when you're comparing it internationally, it can really skew what your outbreak looks like compared to other countries. Um, um, and then other things like it's really important to not just publish the number of positives, but to publish how many tests you've done, because without knowing how many people you've tested, it's you, you don't know the uh, how, how many those number of positives represent, if you know what I mean. Um, so that's one, the data aspect. Um, let me see. Then um, you've got to have your healthcare system able to deal with the further outbreak so continuing to scale up capacity continuing to scale up um, personal protective equipment so ensuring that you have the face masks and so on uh, because if you don't have PPE it means that your outbreak can spread really quickly if health workers get it they can spread it to patients and what we've seen in places like Italy is that places like hospitals possibly were the primary way that the disease was spreading uh, because patients brought who were sick went to, went into hospitals, a very centralised healthcare system, a bit like Ireland's. Um, then healthcare workers got it, and then things like ambulances became vectors for infection. Um, so that's one. And then um, the final recommendation is that ultimately lockdown and restrictions are going to continue in some form 
until we have a vaccine. Uh, the only final way out of this is a vaccine. So the commission is asking all states to do everything they can to prioritise the fast tracking of finding a vaccine. And itself, it's put um, quite a lot of funding towards um, scientific teams that are that are researching a vaccine and also looking at more effective treatments in the here and now for those who who are positive of COVID-19. EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen was quick to say that the roadmap wasn't a signal that containment measures could be lifted now, but instead it was a recognition that states are starting to ease their lockdowns. Uh, and we have we have several examples of that. What's, what's been happening? So a number of states have started to examine um, easing measures. Um, so just off the top of my head, Austria, um, France as well has started to consider opening schools, Denmark, um, some in, in Italy, some shops have been opened. So um, Italy was, of course, the first EU country to go into lockdown. And um, it had it was always the quickest and the most severe with its measures. But it's allowed bookshops, stationery shops and children's clothes shops to reopen. Although some some of its regions, which were really hard hit in its north, have just have opted not to do that. Um, so some some services are beginning to open up. The key thing is, though, they're not opening. They're not reverting to how they were in January before everything happened. The things that are being opening, op- they're opening up, are doing so with a lot of hygiene measures. So, for example, things like staggering customer entry, so you don't have pe- too many people in the space at once. Um, having hand sanitizer or hand washing facilities everywhere, and in some cases, uh, particularly in countries like Austria, having face masks. So Austria has made face masks compulsory in shops and they're extending that out to also public transport and taxis as well. In a further sign of a return to normality, uh, British and European negotiators have reconvened um, this week to try and salvage Brexit talks uh, that followed the incapacitation of, of the lead, negotiator, lead negotiators there, Michelle Barnier and David Frost. But they've lost time in an already tight schedule, haven't they? That's right. So they were supposed to have met five times by May um, in rounds of talks that were going to be very intense. We're talking, I can't remember exactly how many different simultaneous negotiations that were supposed to happen, but, you know, in the order of 15 on different on different topics. Um, They were actually only able to meet for the very first of those scheduled meetings. And that was kind of a getting to know you meeting. So it didn't cover very much ground. Um, So since then, um, Michel Barnier, the lead EU negotiator, tested positive for coronavirus. He had to go into isolation. So did his team. Uh, So the whole thing was totally knocked knocked off course by the pandemic. um, Also because the actual negotiators involved were affected. And so what's happened is today they held their first video meeting. Um, that they've been able to, so their first official meeting since everything got knocked off course. And what they've decided to do is they're going to have, they're going to try and negotiate the exit deal over video conference. So they're going to try and do that. Now, whether that's possible is a big question. It was already hugely challenging for them to try and get come to an, an agreement on the future relationship deal, I- even in normal times. But doing it, can you imagine doing it over Zoom or whatever whatever technology they're going to be using? hugely challenging so what's going to happen is they're going to have three rounds of talks 
The first one is next week, starting on Monday. Then there's another one um, then in May and another one in June. And each one's going to be a week long. And then they're going to assess how much progress they've made by June. Uh, but they need to uh, agree on the future, on the trade relationship between Britain and the EU on every aspect of the economy, which is just a vast, a vast amount of subjects to cover. And some of them are really contentious, um, like things like fishing and, you know, what's the ultimate authority to decide on whether the full rules are being followed, for example. Some of these these questions are very intractable. Um, so it's very it's it's very difficult to see how they're going to get it done on time. They have until December 31st. That's when the transitional period ends. Currently, Britain just keeps on um, with the status quo as it was before until this future, future relationship deal is done. Uh, but if no deal is agreed, then after the end of this year, on the 1st of January, the UK will automatically go to trade with the EU on um, World Trade Organization terms, which would just be a huge economic shock uh, for the UK, also for Ireland, though, um, given how much we export to the UK and given the economic damage that the pandemic has already caused, this, you know, the, the economies are just not in a good position to take it. Um, Britain does have the option to ask for an extension. It can do so if it does so by June. Uh, now, they that's very politically, it has been very politically unpopular in the UK. And the government of Boris Johnson has always said, no, you know, it's in EU law, it's in British law. We passed the withdrawal agreement saying that, you know, and, and a law that said we're going to exit um, the transition arrangement on the 31st of December and we're not going to change that. But we'll see. I mean, it's I do think that the pandemic has changed things. The next EU budget, Naomi, is due to be discussed next week. And I think it's fair to say there's a lot of pressure on to ensure this budget answers in part at least some of Europe's economic woes. Definitely. Um, there's going to be a lot of attention on these talks because this budget was supposed to have been already agreed, but there was um, a falling out and the countries weren't able to agree on it because they disagreed. Um, there's a faction who are called the Frugal Four who don't want to spend any more money on the EU. And they then there's another faction who think that the EU needs to be better funded in order to actually work properly and also to meet the ambitions that it's laid out for itself. The current commission has, you know, made very ambitious goals and and aims for itself about, you know, projecting kind of European power in the world and and all these kind of these kind of things and there's a there's a, a group in Europe a group of countries that believe that in order to do that you just, you know, you need to fund the EU better. Um, so um, that's been complicated, of course, since because now that the pandemic has occurred, there's need for even more funding, obviously. And there's also been this massive fallout about euro bonds or corona bonds, which are shared debt or, uh, obligations that the southern states like Italy and Spain and Portugal and France and also Ireland have called for in order to fund the economic stimulus that's um, they say is needed, you know, to stop what is forecast to potentially be the worst downturn since um, the Great Depression of the 1920s, 1930s. So that that caused a huge rift. And again, the frugal states uh, were against that because they basically fear becoming on the hook for the debt of weaker southern economies. Um, so uh, they, they did come to an agreement there, but they pushed this issue of debt down the road 
And it's all going to come to a head again next week where there'll be talks about the budget, but they'll also this this issue of funding and eurobonds is still going to be lurking there in the background. Um, and some states are going to be pushing that. Some political factions are going to be pushing for an agreement on that again. Um, and the, the, the member states are really, really aware that they the image of the EU just didn't look good in it, generally in its response to the pandemic because of the sort of haphazard and chaotic way that EU states began behaving in a kind of like each, each country out for itself way in the initial pandemic and also because they've been unable to agree um, or they had such difficulty agreeing um, on, on the economic response that has made it that has made given an image that like the EU hasn't been working very well in a time of crisis and it hasn't you know responded quickly enough to be there for citizens in a time of crisis so they're very conscious that they don't want to have another disaster you know they want to be able to all come together and say look it it works it's all working guys we've all d- we've all agreed something so i think there is a huge will to agree and to be seen to agree without too much difficulty as well but there is just huge differences between the member states on on economic matters at the moment. And it's uh, there's it's going to be really difficult to bridge that gap. In the coming weeks, we plan to run episodes in which our experts deal with your queries and questions about coronavirus and the current situation. Send your queries in audio file or text format by email to coronavirus at irishtimes.com. My thanks to Declan Conlon, who produced today's podcast, and thanks for listening. Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. We'll be back tomorrow.